Good morning, Bethel. Our scripture reading for this morning is going to be Psalm 33, verses 1 to 12. So if you want to grab your Bible and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And you can find our text on page 463. So Psalm 33, verses 1 to 12. Would you please stand with me in honor of God's word? Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, so we've been studying through the book of Isaiah, and we just got started last week to work through the second major section in the book. So chapters 1 to 12 is the first major section, and the second major section is chapters 13 to 27. And we're going to walk through the chapters in the second section quite a bit quicker than we did the first 12 chapters. Um, For the most part, chapters 13 to 27 are filled with prophetic words of judgment against the prideful, self-exalting nations of the world at Isaiah's time and after his time. And though, so it can be a little bit depressing as we read judgment after judgment, Um, But even though that's the primary focus of the section, there are some wonderful beams of hope that break through, Um, so we'll get to savor those as we go along. Um, I've said a number of times already as we've um, gone through the study of Isaiah, we're going to have to do some hard work of entering into Isaiah's world and culture if we're really going to understand the significance of these passages for our lives. It takes some work at times, but it's worth it. Well, One of the things that we've got to understand, if we're going to understand this section that we're going to look at, the end of chapter 14 all the way through chapter 20. Don't worry, we're not going to be here until 2.30, maybe 1.30. But one of the things we're going to need to understand is at the time of Isaiah, different nations, different kingdoms, each had their own gods. So for instance, the Philistines had Dagon. The Babylonians had Marduk among others. The Egyptians had Ra, 
among others. So any prosperity or military success was attributed to the might and the superiority of your God. Okay, so the mightier the nation, the mightier your God must be. Well, Judah, in between, see if I can do this right, in between Assyria and Egypt, little Judah in between that Isaiah was addressing, relatively weak, relatively vulnerable. So what did, what did that say about their God? Well, King Ahaz, if you remember back to chapter, chapter 7, he was afraid of the threats to the north, okay, the Assyrians. I'm sorry, not the Assyrians, but um, Syria. And he's, he, was a, he was tempted to make an alliance with Assyria, the real big superpower, in order to save his skin. So the Lord spoke to him back in chapter 7. It says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Trust me, Ahaz, I'll take care of you. Don't make an alliance with Assyria. But rather than trusting the Lord, he did make that alliance with Assyria. And so that was basically a big, fat, no-confidence vote in the face of the Lord and his ability to protect his people. And Judah paid for it. So throughout Israel's history, if they were prosperous, oftentimes what happened was, it was they just got comfortable and they stopped relying on the Lord. When they were weak, it was easy for them to look around for some other help or savior, some other nation, some other protector other than the Lord. So again, remember the geography. They were in the middle. They were vulnerable. They were militarily vulnerable. They were also agriculturally vulnerable. Okay, so Egypt down here, they had the Nile River. So even in drought conditions, you've got the Nile to rely upon. Well, Israel had to rely on the rains. So there's this strong temptation to trust in other powers, other saviors, other deliverers, other protectors, or to start to worship some other gods like fertility gods, goddesses, god of rain, sun, crops. Hey, it seems to be working out okay for the Assyrians. Maybe we should add a few gods. So we can look back on them and just think, oh my goodness, they're so primitive, all this idolatry. Glad we don't do that anymore. But the human heart is the human heart. Our idolatry is just a little bit more sophisticated. So let's not hold this out at arm's length. When we look around at the Joneses and think we need to keep up with them, we're bowing down to their gods. Gods of money, success, appearance, comfort. Boy, they sure seem to be powerful. They sure seem to deliver. They sure seem to know how to satisfy desires. And boy, they, they look really happy. How about when you look around and see cutthroat co-workers advancing? Isn't it easy to bow down to their gods and adopt the same practices in order to get ahead? And we keep going to church, of course. So did the Israelites. It's called syncretism, where you try to blend two or more gods, religions. Okay, so, so again, I've, I've asked these kinds of questions before, but I think we constantly need reminders and we need to be examining our hearts along these lines. Where do you run for relief? Where do you run when the threats rise? Where do you go for comfort? 
Where do you go when anxiety and stress start to get kicked up? So revolving credit trouble could be indicative of running to or bowing to another God, a God that you thought was more powerful than the Lord to fulfill your emptiness or to fill it up. Wiped browsing histories is indicative of running to or bowing to another God, a God you thought was more powerful than the Lord to fulfill your emptiness, your desires. So, oh yeah, we still come to church, but we can cover our bases by worshiping multiple gods. It's almost like we diversify our spiritual portfolio in case the Lord doesn't come through. Or maybe it's because He hasn't come through in the way that you've desired in the past, and so you don't expect Him to anymore. Now, okay, back to the people of God in Isaiah's day. God planted His people in that land on purpose, that agriculturally and militarily vulnerable land. It was a setup. He put them there on purpose. It was a setup to place them there so that they would have to trust in the Lord. He would be able, if they trusted Him, to show His power, His ability, His reliability to care for them. Okay? Like I said, the Egyptians had the Nile. Israel had to rely on the rains. You can't control the rains. you got to trust. It was a setup for trust. So I wonder... I wonder if that couldn't provide a paradigm shift, a a paradigm-shaping perspective for you, for me. What weakness, what lack, what needs, what inability in your life do you tend to begrudge? Do you tend to resent? Do you tend to despise? And oftentimes you look around at others and wish that you had their privilege or power or provision. And sometimes do you try their methods to try to get where they are? So I wonder if it could help to consider what if, just like the Israelites, they were placed in this vulnerable spot on purpose so that God could show that He was able to take care of them. Maybe Maybe he's given me these challenges on purpose in order to provide a school of faith for me and show me that he's able to take care of me. Maybe it's in your marriage. This is is leading right into where we're going to be in Isaiah 14, the end of 14 to 20. If Think about it this way, because I don't think we think of our idolatry. I don't think we see it. We're oftentimes blind to it. So maybe it's in your marriage. If you belittle your spouse and manipulate and tear down, where did you learn that? You're dealing with a threat or a challenge or some trouble, but you're not relying on the Lord if that's the way you're responding. So you're bowing down to some other God who gets things done by force or, or coercion or guilt trips or browbeating. That's not the way God works. It's not the way Yahweh works. He's not like that. Maybe it's in your work. You might have a boss or coworkers or employees or quotas or rising costs that pose threats. And if we lie, cheat, manipulate, overpromise, cut corners, 
what gods are we bowing down to? Do you see it? Certainly not Yahweh because he's the way and the truth in the life, okay? Let me just give a personal example here so that, again, confess my own sin here and see how prone we are to this. So not long ago, um, we were given a car from my aunt. She's in her 90s. She shouldn't be driving. She wanted us to have it. Um, it doesn't get great gas mileage. I have a little Civic. Um, hate to part with 30 miles of the gallon in the city. Um, we have a siding job that needs to, to get done. So we're going to sell it to get that siding job done, you know. So I took it to two dealers to get quotes, you know, appraisals. So the morning I took it to the dealers, um, well, actually, one, one morning and then in the afternoon another because I, I couldn't do them both at the same time. So that morning I'm, I'm about to go in to have this thing appraised, and I look through the, the folder of stuff that I got, you know, some car history, and I happened upon one work order for body work. And I didn't even want to see that. You know where I'm going with this? So I sat down. A lady asks me questions, you know, so they can appraise the thing. She said, so has it ever been in an accident? I said, not that I know of. Now, is that true? Yeah, sort of. Um, I think I had this vague memory that she backed out of her garage and scraped the front, you know. So is it going to show up on auto checker? No, it's not going to show up on auto checker. Do I know how those guys work and da-da-da-da-da, you know, that I lied. So anyway, I was convicted. It hit me afterwards. This is, this is what really did me in. Who gave you the car? Who provided the car? The Lord provided this car. And then I took matters into my own hands to maximize my profit. So I ended up going back to both. I actually, I think I did it at the second place, and I wasn't quite sure, but that's part of, it's indicative I must have if I'm wondering. Anyway, so I went back and talked to these people and apologized and explained why I was coming back to them. So anyway, do you see how I bowed down? Not to God. He's true. He can't lie. Who's the father of lies? But you know, that's how you get things done, right? That's how you maximize your profit, right? No. Couldn't I trust the Lord who gave me the car? So believe it or not, that's the point of chapters 13 to 27. Trust the Lord. He alone is the Lord of the nations. He's no little tribal deity. He's no just one of many gods. He's the Lord of the nations. So I mentioned this last week, but it bears repeating. Do you think that these oracles, so, that, so if, you, if you look through chapters 13 to 27, over and over again, it's the oracle concerning Babylon and then um, Assyria and Damascus and so on and so forth, okay? Do you think that these oracles, especially for the pagan nations around Israel, were delivered to the palaces and read to those kings? No. They were spoken to the people of God. Why 
Why would God say these things to the nations but really say them to his people? It's because he wanted to show his people that these nations, as powerful as they might seem, are nothing compared to the Lord. He's Lord over them all. Don't trust them. Okay, so let's look at the text, and we're going to just dip down in a few spots and cover kind of a lot of ground by seeing some examples of some of the main themes in this big chunk. So he's the Lord of the nations. Look at the end of of chapter 14. The Lord of hosts, verse 24, 24, 14, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land and on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations, for the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? So, at the time, Assyria is the superpower. They would have looked at, at Judah and said, we'll just mow you down just like we've done everybody else. And if you're a part of Judah, you might think, they're going to mow us down just like anybody, everybody else. And the Lord is saying, I'm in charge of all of these nations, the rising and the fall of these nations. I'm actually moving Assyria. It's happening as I've planned, as I've purposed. Okay? So it seems like they're a threat, and you should get on their good side to avoid getting mowed down. And Ahaz did that at the expense of his integrity, just no confidence vote in the face of God. But the book of Isaiah just blows away the smoke and mirrors. <laughs> blows away the smoke. And then we see the mirrors. Um, it helps us hear and see reality. Why in the world would you trust in the gods of these nations if Yahweh is the Lord of the nations? They're all under his sovereign charge. They ultimately do his bidding. He can raise them up for his purposes, and he can bring them down. So if we trust in people at the expense of trusting in the Lord, even if it's powerful people that can get stuff done, we're like a little child impressed with some muscle-bound action figure and thinking it more powerful than, you know, a capable father that bought that little action figure. So to Judah's south and west, so that's Assyria, the north and east, to Judah's south and west, Egypt was the power and the threat. Look at what Isaiah prophesied about Egypt. Look at chapter 19. So flip ahead a few chapters. Again, I said we're going to just dip down into a few different places here because there's some recurring themes. We see again that Yahweh is the Lord of the nations. Chapter 19, verse 1, an oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. So their gods are not stronger than Israel's God. 
and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them, and I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight each one against another, and each one against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom, and the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel, and they will inquire of the idols and the sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers. See, these are all the things and people in which they trusted. And the Lord is Lord over all of that. He's the Lord of the nation, so he's going to confound their so-called wisdom. Verse 4, and I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master. Do you see the poetic justice there? They were the hard master for the Israelites when they were in Egypt, remember? And now the Lord's going to judge them and give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master, and a fierce king will rule over them declares the Lord God of hosts, the one who is the Lord over all the nations. And it goes on. All the things that they trusted in are just going to, the Nile's going to dry up. None of it can protect them or provide for them if Yahweh is against them. So from a purely natural kind of on-paper perspective, Egypt was a powerful either ally or threat. But if you were to trust in Egypt as, you know, make an alliance to protect you from some other kingdom threat, it's like betting on a lame duck. Yahweh alone is the Lord of the nations. He's the only one worthy of their trust, and he's the only one worthy of our trust. So there may be many nations, even for us, many people in our lives who reject God and seem to prosper. They may seem to rise and prosper while we struggle and get passed over. It doesn't matter. It's only a matter of time. Look at Isaiah 20, verses 2 to 6. Listen to the way God speaks of Egypt. Again, they were a threat. It was easy for Israel to, to see that threat, feel that threat, and want to compromise and do whatever it took to save their skin rather than trust the Lord. But look at Isaiah 20, verse 2. At that time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Sometimes God called his, his prophets to be living illustrations of the truth that he was trying to tell the people. They had their fingers in their ears so much that God had to take drastic measures to get their attention. <laughs> Here's some drastic measures. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, but with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and Egypt their boast." They put their hope in the wrong place. They put their boast, their pride in the wrong place, and they'll be ashamed of it. And the inhabitants of this coastland, verse 6, will say, in that day, behold, this is what happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? So, these false hopes, these false gods, they will be shown for what they are. So do you see it there? It happens in that day. We talked about this last week, on the day of the Lord, okay, the day when, when the Lord shows up in judgment. And you know what? This kind of thing, this actually happened in history. Egypt fell. 
But the day of the Lord also speaks of a final day, a day of final judgment at the end of time. So let's look at the second point. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Um, One day, all the prideful nations and and everybody that just sets themselves up against God, shakes their fist in his face, they're going to be brought down from their prideful perches and they're going to be judged. So all the judgments that happen in history are foreshadowings of what's to come. So let's look at what happens with Moab. Look at chapter 16. Flip back to chapter 16, verse 6. These judgments in history are like a foreshadowing of final judgment at the end. 16, verse 6. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence. In his idle boasting, he is not right. And so as a result, the Lord's going to bring them down, humble them. Look at verse 14. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, In three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab, they seem so strong, so powerful, so highly exalted, they're going to be brought into contempt. In spite of all his great multitude, And those who remain will be very few and feeble. So listen, all the false hopes and refuges and saviors are going to come to nothing. So the warning comes to us now so that we can ask ourselves, oh man, I am spring-loaded. I am inclined to trust in other things, to take matters into my own hands. Where is my trust? Where's my hope? Where's my security? Where's my help? Where's my comfort? Where do I run? Now, there's something else hugely significant in the book of Isaiah that we need to see. Yes, that final day, the day of the Lord, is a final day of judgment, okay, when all the proud and lofty will be brought down and judged. There's going to be no recovery or recourse from that final verdict, okay? If you, re- if you refuse to bow to the King of kings and Lord of lords in this life, you will be forced to one day in the future. But... In the book of Isaiah, over and over again, we see that judgment isn't the last word. Judgment is this temporary necessity in order to get the attention of the people, in order to wake them up from their spiritual sleep, in order to tear away the calluses from their dull, insensitive, hard hearts that's a result of their pride and their rebellion. So look at the language in chapter 19. We're going to look at point number three, striking and healing. Look at chapter 19, verse 22. This is what the Lord promised to do to Egypt. We just read of how he promised to judge them, but judgment's not the last word. 19.22. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord. And he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. He's going to strike them in order to heal them. He's going to strike them that they might return to him so that they will call out for mercy and he's going to hear those calls for mercy and heal them. So this is what the God of Isaiah is all about. The God who saves. Isaiah's name means Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. He loves to save. He's the only true and living Savior. And he wants to heal So when we run to other so-called gods and saviors, we're looking for balm for our anxiety. We're 
We're looking for healing sometimes. And when we run to false gods, God all along is saying, why will you die? Or in the words of Isaiah 55, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Come to me. Eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. He wants to heal us. Sometimes he needs to strike us in order to heal us. But he does the striking in order to do the healing. Okay? So remember how it says that the judgments will come in that day? Look now at chapter 17, verse 7. In that day, when God shows up, right? That day is the day of the Lord. God shows up on the day of the Lord, and usually it's to save and to judge. So in that day, man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. So rather than looking to all these false gods, running to all these other false functional saviors, he will not look to the altars, verse 8, to the work of his hands, idols, and he will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the asherim or the altars of incense. Again, they're not going to run. In that day, they're not going to run to all these other gods. Well, in what day? Again, day of the Lord. But I thought the day of the Lord was a day of judgment. Well, it is. Turn one more time. <laughs> Well, maybe more than one more time, but I I know we're jumping around. But flip to Isaiah 53. You need to see this. Isn't the day of the Lord a day of judgment? How is it that in that day, people are going to look to their maker again? Their eyes are going to look on the Holy One of Israel, and they're not going to look to trust in their idols. Isaiah 53, familiar territory for many of us. 53.4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, striking and healing, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, to all these false helps. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So here's this high and exalted Holy One of Israel. He can't sweep the rebellion and idolatry and all those no-confidence votes under the rug. All of our sin, he's got to punish it. The day of the Lord has got to come. His judgment's got to come. The blow of judgment must fall. And guess what? The day of the Lord came, at least it started to come, when the virgin miraculously was found to be with child and Emmanuel, God with us, showed up. 
And this child who was born to us, he's supposed to be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the prince of peace, the everlasting father. Well, amazingly, he's also this suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The high and lifted up exalted king of Isaiah 6, it says in 52.13, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up on a cross. He was stricken so that we could be healed. That's our God. That's what he does. He strikes so that he can heal. The judgment that we deserve fell on Jesus so that we could be healed. Can you trust a God like that? Can we trust a Savior like this? I mean, all these false gods, all the stuff that we run to, self-medicating, like all that stuff, did any of that stuff ever die for you? Did any of, any of those things ever love you like this? Take the blow so that you could be really healed? No, they make false promises of healing and then they bite. They strike you. <laughs> it's the reverse. So what does it look like when you experience this kind of healing? Well, look back in chapter 17. Look at verse 7 again. In that day, man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to these other so-called gods. That's what happens when God heals us. It's actually how he heals us, by directing our gaze to him so that we trust in him, we look to him, we hope in him, and not to the gods of the nations. So, brothers, I know this is, you know, sometimes it feels like a history lesson going through Isaiah, but listen, haven't we had enough of self-reliance and where that's gotten us? Like, have any of you tasted the bitter fruit of bowing down to a false god like I did that one day at two different auto dealerships going, what am I thinking? I can't believe I just did that. Don't you want to look to your maker and your savior and forsake all pride and arrogance and look humbly to the Holy One of Israel, high and exalted one, who even though he inhabits eternity, he loves to dwell with the lowly and contrite of heart to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. He gives grace to the humble, those who humbly rely on him and trust in him. So it hit me with new weight this, this week. This is maybe, again, really obvious, but do we actually practically live like this moment by moment? What if you really walked through this week and looked to your maker and your savior just regularly? Every time you were tempted to run to food for comfort, to porn for comfort, to money to satisfy shopping, whatever, all these false gods, things that we can run to. What if drown yourself in your work or alcohol or whatever? What if we, what if we looked to our maker and our savior? Really practically in the moment, what if we did that? Look at his character. He took the blow. He was stricken so that we could be healed. All these false gods promise false healing and then they bite us, they strike us. So what if in your singleness, look to your maker who Isaiah says is your husband, 
What if in our marriages, you might be in a crummy, messed up, feeling like it's hopeless sort of marriage. What if we looked to our maker? This would be healing at work in us if we were to humbly say, you're enough for this. You've got purposes for this. You've got plans for this. You've got grace for this. Really practically, in our parenting, you might be totally like, frustrated, exasperated. You don't know what to do. What if we looked to our maker, to the Holy One of Israel? He's big enough. He was big enough to deal with the Assyrians. He's big enough to deal with the, the Egyptians, these superpowers. They were nothing to him. He wants to heal us. <laughs> he took the blow so that we could be healed. And he loves to give grace to humble people who rely on him for everything. How about in your work? There might be all kinds of temptations to all kinds of things in your work. You might be facing scenarios where you just don't know. What if you just looked to your maker, to the Holy One of Israel? How about in your finances? There could be all kinds of threats there. And you might be tempted to to compromise your integrity to try to make your way. What if you looked to the Lord. He wants to heal you and strengthen you so that you can live by faith, walk by faith and not by sight. How about in your dreams and hopes? Maybe most of them have been shattered. What if you looked to your maker, the Holy One of Israel? How about your health? Again, there might be all kinds of threats there. What if we looked to the Lord? He's sovereign over all of this. He's got purposes in all of it? What if we just said, away with our pride, away with my sense of entitlement, away with my self-pity, that's just wounded pride, away with my ingratitude, my impatience, my anger, because I want my will to be done, because I think too highly of myself, and we said, this is the one to whom he looks, he was humble and contrite and trembles at his word. That's who I want to be. I want to look to my maker and my savior. Pride is soul sickness. Isaiah 1.5 says, why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. So looking away from all those so-called gods, just intentionally looking away from them and looking to Jesus is soul health and it's the path to soul health. That's why in John 3, Jesus is likened to that serpent in the wilderness. All those people were bitten, and if they looked to the bronze serpent, they were healed. John 3, 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So we started with the fact that Yahweh is the Lord over the nations, right? None of them are more powerful than he. They are pawns merely in his hand. But we're also going to end with the fact that Yahweh is the Lord over the nations in a different sense. Okay? So turn to... I actually don't have the chapter written here. I think it's um, 19. Yep. So 1919. And we'll, we'll wrap things up here looking at the fact that he's the Lord of the nations in a different sense as well. In that day, again, remember, 
Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was the beginning of the final day. And his return will be the conclusion of that final day. So in this in-between time is the day of salvation before the final day of judgment. So in that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. The Egyptians are going to worship the true God. They're not going to look to Ra and all, this other, all these other false gods. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. He's going to do for Egypt what he did for the Israelites when the Israelites were in Egypt. You see that? Verse 21, and the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them, and the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, we looked at that already, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The two threats. There's going to be this highway And Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria. Not so that they can conquer each other and prove who's the real superpower, but so that they can worship together. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So the nations are going to be a part of the people of God. And they're going to worship him together. So once again, he's Lord of the nations, folks. Our God is not some mere tribal local deity. He's the Lord of the nations, all the nations. Monotheism demands mission. I don't know who first said that. It's not me. (laughs) The fact that there is only one true Savior means that we need to tell the world. He wants to heal the nations. That's why Alex and Betsy are going to Indonesia, and we are so glad to send them. Because he wants to heal that nation. He wants to heal so many in that nation. So the fact that there's only one true God and one true Savior means that we need to tell the world beginning in our backyard. So this passage, as much as Isaiah 14 to 20 seems so far away from us, culturally, historically, all these images that we don't quite understand in geography we're confused by, it commends and compels the mission of the church. We are, you could say, And so are the Israelites. They failed at this, and often we fail as well, but they were in the world at that time in order to be a light to the world. They weren't supposed to be of the world. They were supposed to be for the world. They were supposed to be a light to the nations, and they they failed. We don't want to fail like this. We need to look to our Maker, who's the Holy One of Israel, who's our Savior. So if we look to Him, we're not going to be of the world, even though we're in the world. We're going to reach out and be for the world because we want the nations to be healed. We want our neighbors to be healed. 
because we know our God, who's the Lord of all the nations, the only Savior, has a plan to redeem people, to heal people from every nation because he's Lord of the nations. So worshiping this God comes with a call to witness to this God and what he's done, that the nations, starting with our neighbors, might be healed. Let's pray. Oh, Father, in the words of that old prayer, what we know not, teach us and show us. Show us our blind spots. Show us your glory. Show us your goodness and grace and strength. What we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us for the glory of your great name. And in Jesus' name, amen.